I guess you were there for that three o'clock announcement. Well, I definitely tuned into it. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, yes, the RNZ TVNZ merger, uh, the new public media entity plan, uh, not uh, a bread and butter policy. Uh, it's been decided by the new prime minister and his reshuffled cabinet. So, uh, yeah, basically the least surprising kind of breaking news story. And uh, it was fascinating listening to, I think, the midday news on RNZ National. Uh, the way that was scripted, so three hours before the announcement, uh, Nicola Wright reading that, the end of the road is nearly here for the government's troubled public media plan. It just, uh, yeah, it, it really did kind of limp to it. So in the end, it was kind of uh, put out of its misery, I think, by the Prime Minister. What, what went wrong with the plan for it to end up like this? Well, essentially that uh, the cabinet ministers that agreed to it a couple of years ago uh, now no longer support it. So the official explanation is the bread and butter issue, focusing on uh, stuff that's essential for cost of living and priorities and all of that. Um, however, you know, clearly it had other problems as well. Uh, the proposed legislation for it was criticised even by strong supporters of public broadcasting. Um, the Parliamentary Committee, scrutinising that bill, rewrote parts of it last month in their report back on it. Um, so, And there was pretty active opposition from a lot of people vested in interest. Of course, the political opposition. Um, interesting that uh, the, the opposition leader, Christopher Luxon, was sort of fairly non-committal about it early on, but as he realised that this was a kind of easy hit in political terms, uh, in terms of so-called wasteful spending, he, he ramped up his criticism of it to the point where he was calling it not just a bad policy, but a mad one. Uh, he repeatedly labelled it insane over uh, recent days and weeks. He did that this very morning on TVNZ's breakfast show, so clearly they didn't rate it. But, I mean, beyond that, is it, maybe it's almost a philosophical thing, but initially... The government was very strong on insisting uh, that this was not a merger. This was a creation of a new public media entity, you know, that would have the, you know, the best of RNZ and TVNZ and and replace them. But uh, that notion of a, a merger uh, came to take hold. The enabling legislation, when it came out, pretty much looked like legislation to allow that to happen. And the other big problem was that the previous prime minister, Jacinda Ardern, the two broadcasting ministers, Chris Farfoy and then his successor, Willie Jackson, never were able to really tell people who were asking what sort of new services or new capability this new entity, uh, Aotearoa New Zealand Public Media, would actually offer that the previous, uh, the, the existing, the current state-owned broadcasters offer now. What, what would be different? Now, they made the argument which is perhaps fair and reasonable that, you know, this is up to the executives and the board that were yet to be appointed to run it. You don't want to tie their hands, and it's not for ministers to say, you know, how a broadcaster should operationally run a public media entity. Uh, and that's sort of fair enough, but when you're not creating a new one and giving it a blank sheet of paper when it clearly is a merger of some degree between two existing ones, then people do want to know because then they've got the worry about whether the best of what they value in both of them is actually at risk when they were, you know, put pushed together in this in this new entity, which, you know, as I say, they were given never given any sort of clear notion of what it might offer. And then a final problem, that so much of the process was done behind closed doors, very little opportunity for the public and interested uh, stakeholders or whatever we ought to call them without getting too bureaucratic, you know, uh, people with an interest um, could, could have a say in it or could even know what was on the table, what was being discussed. So that was another another reason why it, it lacked support. Also, the broadcasting opposition, RNZ, isn't supposed to be uh, uh, commercial in that aspect, but it is perceived to be commercial, and it is in many um, regards from the opposition. 
Well, yeah, partly that, I mean, it's not explicitly commercial, of course. And in fact, that was one thing that was clear in the policy. All existing non-commercial services of RNZ would be retained. That was one thing that, that was clear and guaranteed. And then the other thing that was clear was the level of financial commitment that the government was prepared to make, $109 million per year up until 2026, so a three-year period. But yeah, what, what the, I guess the rival commercial media, if we want to call it that, and others had concerns about was the scale of this, if it had the commercial cloud of TVNZ, but was also backstopped and not-for-profit, so it didn't have to worry about turning a buck or not going into the red, that would affect um, other broadcasters. Now, you can turn that, in if the government was being... Sticking to its guns, they'll say, well, other countries have a public broadcaster of the scale and the scope across all media. Um, we currently have two that overlap in certain functions. We're going to push them together and, you know, you will find a way, nimble commercial broadcasters of coexisting with it, as happens in other places. But uh, as it was, those arguments were left to sort of hammer away at um, at uh, the, the government that wasn't uh, backing it up in a way that the public found convincing. And uh, so th- I think those, those arguments... Um, sort of cut home, but uh, the the Prime Minister has indicated there will be some measure of um, additional funding for RNZ, that they do need it. There is a content gap, uh, he called it, Um, so yeah, that will be some consolation, I guess, to uh, people at RNZ who, you know, if they took the government's word, will be working for an outfit with a different name and a completely different uh, structure as of March the 1st, so the fact it wasn't really nearly ready to go on March the 1st uh, I guess is a signal that it wasn't really on the rails or on the cards. You'll be able to fix the leak in the ceiling at the Auckland uh, offices. That's an operational matter for, <laughs> the, uh, for the executives of RNZ under their current financial strictures and one I'm not really able to express an opinion. Change upon. the tablecloth in here, do you reckon? Yeah, do, do what you've got to do. You know, do what works. You know. think do it's what been, you can I, with what you've got. I think it's been here since 1950. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it has. So uh, you mentioned funding, um, increased funding, um, or the Prime Minister mentioned funding, I think $10 million I think Lisa Rowan uh, talking to Chris Hipkins today and he mentioned the sum between, it was a sliding figure from 5 to 12 million, uh, but couldn't really be pinned down on whether that was annually or over three years or what. Yes, that was indeed um, confusing and sort of illuminating at the the same time as while RNZ and TVNZ both put out statements welcoming the clarity of the government's announcement, which is a diplomatic way of of putting it, I guess. Uh, The one thing that wasn't clear was this aspect of of what would replace it in terms of of money for RNZ. So, yes, the different things said in the press conference by uh, the Prime Minister and in that checkpoint interview with Lisa Owen. So what I think happened was initially he said something around short-term funding around the $10 million mark. This was in the press conference when questioned by journalists and that could be done before the next budget process. So he seemed to be indicating that a financial injection to to balance RNZ's books um, because of current cost pressures and and all the rest of it could be done uh, relatively in the short term. However, if you're looking at beyond that, uh, so whereas the the horizon for the public media entity funding was the three years to 2026, uh, he was saying that there could be um, sustainability funding, he called it, or sustainability gap at one point. That's where that figure of, I think, 5 million came in and 12 million. So I think after discussing this with a few people, I think the expectation is there might be some injection of around about $5 million 
uh, in that short term that doesn't have to go through any budget process and then uh, there will be uh, some sort of sliding scale of, of sustainability capacity building funding which could be around that 10 $12 million mark, but that's all got to be confirmed. And the Prime Minister did say that the Minister of Broadcasting, Willie Jackson, will now have to go back to um, Cabinet with a proposal for uh, a, a scale of funding for uh, upcoming years that I guess would, would then fit into budget planning for the future. Yeah, what are the long-term consequences of not doing this, the merger? Yeah, that's interesting and harder to say. Um, but I mean... <laughs> One consequence could be that no government in the foreseeable future will ever do anything substantial uh, with our broadcasting, our public media infrastructure and, and, and the way the landscape is set up because Labor's had two go. This Labor government has had two goes, two policies and walked away from both of them for uh, funding um, RNZ and then creating this new public media entity. Previous Labour lead governments have intervened unsuccessfully in the end with things like the TVNZ Charter and then uh, the TVNZ non-commercial channels that didn't last. The national lead governments have tended not to be interested in messing with this at all. They've been happy to keep New Zealand on air going as a you know source of contestable funding, uh, ticking the box that says local content is being uh, provided uh, and that money spent on productions is making it to the screen or online at one point or another and they're happy with that but you know in the end we have a system now that has things that have been in place for about 30 years New Zealand on air 33 years some say it works well but others say you know effectively there are resources there that could be used for more effectively for um, public broadcasting particularly in core things like news and current affairs which it was never set up to fund initially Uh, so we're currently spending a lot of money across a lot of different media and agencies uh, more than 300 million dollars across the board and if this latest effort that just hasn't worked to do something to make the whole system sort of fit for the future as politicians like to say it's hard to see anyone wanting to do it again in the future and I think the money we do have now if you break it all down it isn't delivering a terribly comprehensive service such as people in other countries get from their public broadcasters and on top of that there are other things much less mentioned just one for example is that parallel with this uh, was supposed to be um, a Maori broadcasting strategy developed by Willie Jackson that's false started twice and that was held back because of this public media entity which is not not now happening Um, also a review of media regulation this was uh, to take into account things like the Broadcasting Standards Authority Advertising Standards Authority the Classifications Office uh, these outfits the Media Council that we have that are all different uh, and have all have different legacies and have existed for quite a long time that, that regulate our media they don't really suit the digital landscape we operate in now there's a review of that too which was supposed to be running in parallel with the public media program but you know it's it's not likely in my view that that is a, a bread and butter policy that's going to be pursued with vigor so all these things they had in mind to you know update our our, our media system uh you know really have stalled i think and that is the consequence of, of what's happened well colin while we're talking about the failed tvnz rnz merger we've got nationals broadcasting spokesperson melissa lee on the line Kia ora, Melissa. Kia ora. How are you, Karen? Good, thank you. Um, given your long-standing opposition to the merger, you'll be in full agreement of the Prime Minister's decision today. I think it's a good decision, about time. He could have made that decision last year, but he wasn't Prime Minister, I guess. Uh, good to hear that from the opposition. <laughs> You're in full agreement with the Prime Minister. You don't hear that very often. So what, what, what was your main rationale for not wanting this merger to happen? 
Well, I'll put it, I'll put it this way. I, I'm a supporter of local content. I have been a content creator in my previous life as a TV uh, producer, and I support local content, and I have always said that. Having said that, uh, the amount of money that this merger was actually going to cost, $370 million for the next three years to actually bring together RNZ and TVNZ. And as Colin actually aptly put it, the government could not actually explain why they were doing it. They were, uh, they couldn't identify a, a problem that they were trying to fix. And, you know, uh, there wasn't anything that the new Aotearoa New Zealand public media was going to provide for New Zealanders that RNZ and TVNZ don't already do. Perhaps they just didn't articulate it very well. well the, do you agree with people spending your taxpayer money just willy-nilly with no purpose? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am sitting inside RNZ, so I do t- see it from a particular perspective. But as Colin said, um, we're spending something like $300 million plus on all media on a range of overlapping platforms and projects and uh, not efficiently. Uh, if opposition do take power, would you confront that a bit a better at what you would see as a better use of spending? Well, as Colin was actually explaining all of the things that are actually going wrong, I mean, I'm just sitting here listening to you and going, oh, my God, what a mess. And that is exactly where we are at. I mean, the media landscape has actually been changing for quite some time. And and the thing is that both RNZ and TVNZ have been trying to grapple with the change in the audience um, and the way that they actually consume the media as well. And I think media companies, um, of both public and private, are actually are grappling with that uh, reality. Uh, to actually bring their audiences or, or to actually get to their audiences. And, you know, we, we need to actually look at that. And as Colin said, you know, there are a lot of a lot of things that have actually happened that the government put uh, together, the review after review and, you know, all that sort of stuff, which still hasn't actually happened for a lot of things, the broadcasting stuff. And this merger was just one of those things that actually happened and, you know, they could, they still could not explain. And I think it just was a bad idea. Just, I mean, a bad idea is very simplistic, but what were some of the other reasons that you thought it was a bad idea? Well, one of the things that I really did not like was that there was a, um, you know, uh, an RNZ charter review that the uh, Select Committee actually did, and the, um, the government basically dismissed it, saying that this is going to be fixed by the merger. Um, and I guess perhaps hopefully they'll go back to that document that the Select Committee has actually produced as a result of submission by the public, uh, which doesn't actually cost $9,000, like these consultants are actually being paid. Um, and perhaps they can actually have a look at it and actually say maybe there might be some things that RNZ can actually take here on, on, on some of the things that the public actually want. Do, look, do you think I they would have got lost in the merger, those I initiatives? I think so. I think, you know, there are some of the, you know, suggestions that, you know, the public had actually made through this committee process. There were more than 900 submissions. And, you know, pretty much the government uh, tried, basically ignored it. And hence, that's why I actually basically opposed the select committee, um, you know, uh, process in the sense that I opposed every single aspect of that bill. 900 submissions for or again, do you mean? Pardon me? 900 submissions for or against. What was the breakdown of that? well, to me, there were a lot of people who actually, a lot of people who actually thought it was actually. There were some aspects of it that was actually good, but they didn't believe that the, uh, the legislation was good enough. I mean, if you look at well, a very um, big submission from Koi Two Group from the universities, uh, people from the industry, as well as academics who actually pulled together to actually put that submission through, it was very substantive. 
And they actually, if I can remember it correctly, they actually said something like, this is dangerous to our democracy. And I have to listen to that. So that, that was the fault of the bureaucrats who put that, that together, those papers together, or the ministers. Well, I mean, the, the minister is responsible for the bureaucrats, <laughs> I'm guessing. Yeah, but they don't write it, do they? They, they just peddle it often. Well, the minister has to give the final okay. Yes, that's true. Hey, but under under a national government, Melissa, would would you cut funding to Radio New Zealand? Uh, look, I, I'm not going to talk about whether it's going to be a cut or an increase. Look, I, we've already committed saying that we will actually provide funding to RNZ that is actually required by them. And I think the national leader has actually already committed to that. But, you know, at the end of the day, you're going to have to go and look at the budgets and go, where is it going wrong? Where is the, where is the bits that are actually missing from the funding? Uh, why is there a lack of funding? And, you know, you, you need to have a proper look. And I'm not a minister. I'm not the minister. And I uh, haven't actually looked at all of the budgetary requirements for RNZ. So if once, if we're lucky enough to be government uh, on October the 14th, uh, and I'm guessing uh, I may get the portfolio if that is the case. That's one of the things that I'll be looking at to see where RNZ actually needs government support. You, you must know pretty much, though, how much money is required as national spokesperson. You must see these but, figures yeah, that were out yeah. today, 10 million from Chris Hipkins, or, and then there was this 5 to 12 million, uh, that it must sit somewhere in that, or, or more than that that is required. Well, uh, let's put it this way. If the government did not waste millions of money on consultants, perhaps it could have gone to RNZ. One million, I believe, was it? No. Last year, Chris Farfoy, I mean, when Chris Farfoy was a minister, I think he spent $5.7 million on um, working groups. So all in all, how much was spent on this initiative that's just well, been scrapped? More than $20 million. Oh, I'll have to confirm that figure. But anyway, okay, so <laughs> Melissa, so you're in agreement with the Prime Minister. That's good to hear. Well, finally, he's actually, he's actually made sense. <laughs> see the light. <laughs> We've been telling him that for a few years. Oh, well, thank you very much for staying up for us tonight. Good to talk to you. You're welcome. That's National Broadcasting Spokesperson Melissa Lee. Back to Colin Peacock for Midweek Media Watch. What do you think, Colin? Mm, well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. She still says, it's a line she's used throughout this, that Labour was kind of inventing a problem in doing this, um, you know, and she and her party leader described it as an ideological project. I mean, those are kind of political lines. But the thing is, if she becomes the minister, there there is a problem there and she will have to take a look at it because, you know, now we have the situation, as I said before, you know, a lot of some 300 odd million plus is being spent on all forms of media, not a great service coming out of that for the public. So now that the merger is not on, you've got, a very small-scale public broadcaster in international terms uh, in RNZ that will carry on doing what it does and trying to do things online as well as its core services on the radio. It's sort of legacy operation, if you want to call it that. Uh, and then you've got TBNZ, which will carry on, possibly you know, just about the only commercial state-owned 
TV company in the world that's doing news and entertainment online. Uh, it dominates the free-to-air TV market. Uh, it doesn't make any significant money, and there's no seems to be no expectation that it will for the nation anymore. So why does why does a national government or any government necessarily want to own that, and make that the cornerstone of its um, public media asset into the future? You know, these are all questions you will have to um, have to confront. And then there's New Zealand on air as well, which is you know we pointed out really wasn't set up to and isn't best suited to news and current affairs, which is a key thing. And um, you know, if we think about that emergency across Auckland and how the media have been criticised for, you know, it was a holiday weekend, but not quite being up to speed in the way that they have for previous emergencies. Um, you know, imagine if we did have a joint uh, and better funded and better staffed uh, single institution that had a bigger reporting staff to call upon and could go across all three media. You know, that could have been a very different broadcast and the critics saying different things. And that might be needed in the next, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ahead at some point as well. Well, it has been done in the past, obviously, with the NZBC. Uh, it's not a new initiative, is it? No, sure, but we've had since so maybe Pike River, perhaps being the first of the sort of contemporary era of disasters where broadcasters suddenly had to go into rolling coverage in a way they hadn't done. We don't have a 24-hour news channel, for example, on television that they have in the UK. Australia has one, possibly not widely watched in a whole lot of times, operated um, by uh, the ABC, but they have privately, they have Sky News as well. They have that. We don't have that stuff. And, you know, maybe there could come a time, particularly if people are looking to other commercial media companies, which we know have their uh, financial challenges, um, you know, can we be confident in five, ten years' time that they will be running effective live news services? I mean, I hope so, but can we can we guarantee that? You know, it could be that uh, by clinging on to, as it seems, you know, National's policy of saying things aren't broke, don't fix them. I think those are literally words uh, that the National Party has used to criticise Labour's policy. Well, you know, there is something that is not going to be or is, is going to require fixing within, you know, the foreseeable future. And... Um, I think the way all this has unfolded makes it sort of a lot less likely that anyone is going to want to tackle that for some time. So can you just confirm those figures? Was it a million on consultants and 20 million all up? Oh, there are, there are very different uh, estimates of this. The New Zealand Herald, I think, just uh, this evening was reporting 16 million as a total that was supplied to them by the Ministry for Culture and Heritage, which is the ministry charged with overseeing the government's strong public media uh, policy. Another figure was reported earlier today of being $23 million that I think was attributed to the Minister of Finance some weeks ago when he was asked to supply a figure. I think David Seymour also quoted the New Zealand Herald claiming he reckons more than $30 million has been spent. I don't know. But look, in the end, I mean, it's a lot of money. And yes, we've heard the figures for the consultants. I don't know how much is too much and how much is you know, egregiously too much. But if you were going to put together something that would stand the test of time, that would actually replace two institutions if this thing had, had worked, those costs uh, would you know, melt into the distance in the past. It's the same with the health system, other things. Uh, so I don't know. I honestly don't know. It seems if, it, if it's not going ahead now, yes, it, it's been a waste and it's a shame and it definitely could have been better spent on other things. But uh, look, if it had worked, uh, who knows? I don't think we'd be quibbling about it in five or ten years' time. Uh, just a text here on objectivity. Uh, it says, Karen, it's difficult for you or RNZ to be objective about the go, no-go on the merger as you are pro-Labour and strongly supportive of Labour. I don't think there's any basis for that opinion, Colin. 
Uh, well, probably not. But here's the, this is the thing. It's a shame that this is political. Like I say, it has been labelled by political opponents as an ideological project. Um, and given the level of sort of paranoia about uh, the media and bias and so on and fake news, all of that, which is a backdrop to part of this and one of the reasons perhaps why they would have wanted a, a strong uh, and genuinely independent um, public media outfit to exist. Um, it's a pity because I th- honestly, I think if you look at it, you would see that the structures we have aren't quite logical, aren't, aren't what you would design. You know, a fully commercial, state-owned television company, also operating online, of course, and then a much smaller one in RNZ also trying to do things online uh, with a with a much more restricted budget. You know, I think if you were an outsider, you came and looked at it, uh, you wouldn't think that that was entirely logical. And while that New Zealand on your system, which has a, a bigger budget than RNZ to supply content, but over a range of platforms, yeah, I mean that, that's that's effective. But you know, it, it's it's a pity that people think that uh, the people of any ideological persuasion couldn't look at what we have and think actually, you know, a stronger, reliable source of news and a guarantee of it, if it could be done and, and be independent and politically free of influence and all those important things would be something that everyone could value in 20 or 30 years' time. Yeah, I think it's the commercial aspect. That would have to go. Well, possibly, but again, other countries do it. There would be ways of doing it. You know, as is often said, RTE in Ireland, a country of similar size, runs commercials on its state-owned channels, but it it doesn't necessarily dominate what they do. So a not-for-profit outfit that ran commercials, albeit that would be annoying to other commercial broadcasters, not necessarily uh, making it impossible. Um, it makes it difficult, but you know there there could be ways of doing it. But you know we won't know because the structure it looks like uh, not being adopted, uh, and uh, uh, yeah, I really don't think anyone's going to go back to it anytime soon. Uh, I've got plenty of response, but I know we've got a lot to get through, and we've hardly touched upon it. Um, should we go back to the weekend? A peaceful picture at Waitangi, um, and in, in years gone by, the media often zeroed in on conflict and. Uh, controversy at Waitangi, but it was a lot quieter this year. Yeah, it seemed that way to me, just looking at it um, from a distance via the media, not not on the ground, of course, um, and I wasn't the only one saying it, others in the media uh, said so too. So, yeah, a few explanations for that, possibly. I mean, obviously the heat, the momentum's been taken out of Waitangi Day with COVID over the last couple of years, so maybe that possibly took any heat out of uh, what might have happened as a live event, but also maybe things going on, other People commenting on this have pointed to, you know, there are a wider range of political parties involved these days, a government with a bigger caucus of Māori MPs on the ground there, the progress of treaty settlements, other levels of engagement. All these things have possibly changed the dynamics from the, you know, the mood uh, in the past. But also, possibly, yes, the media less inclined to focus on protest and division and issues that previously were kind of the default Um just going back a bit, it was 11 years the Herald published a column uh, 11 years ago by Paul Holmes where he said it was a repugnant national holiday. He branded protesters uh, hateful, hate-fueled weirdos. And a couple of years later, the Herald did, I think, the now notorious raised white fist on its masthead with the, the promise that its Waitangi Day coverage would be protest-free. And, you know, I don't think any media would want to um, go back to that approach on Waitangi Day. Uh, remind us, what was that all about? Well, that that at the time is interesting. The the New Zealand Herald editor Shane Curry, um, when he, there were formal complaints made about this, he said this was actually the paper's own protest at 
other media's focus on protests. That was how he explained it. He said there are a small group of protesters that try to hijack Waitangi Day each year with headline-grabbing antics, and they weren't having it. And the, he pointed out that uh, that paper that day ran seven pages of debate and discussion on Waitangi Day. So very balanced. When the press council had to consider complaints, they said, look, that uh, that raised fist protest-free logo was actually a, a marketing gimmick and didn't actually re- reflect the nuance and breadth of the content, you know. And just one other little vignette of, you know, thinking about how people might have done things on Waitangi Day or relating to it that they wouldn't do now. The spin-off had a piece uh, uh, acknowledging, I think, the 10 years since the first ever screening of Seven Sharp on TVNZ, and they had a Jesse Mulligan joke on that. 10 years ago, they had the Super Bowl in the weekend uh, just before that uh, Seven Sharp show, and he made this joke, the Super Bowl, an annual afternoon of televised violence that divides a whole nation. Uh, we've got one of those coming up in New Zealand this week. It's called Waitangi Day. Tish. So, yeah, I don't yes. think I don't think the media are inclined to uh, to engage in that sort of stuff right now. No. Uh, the request for the less politics this year actually came from the hosts. Did that make a difference? Yeah, hard to know because, you know, obviously political stuff was discussed and just the host saying that, I think, relatively late in the piece as well with the invitations is no guarantee that things will play out like that. We have co-governance and other hot issues in the background. But, yeah, as far as we can tell from media coverage, there were no major protests or disruptions to speak of. And Audrey Young in the Herald uh, was one of those who'd been to a lot of Waitangi Day events and uh, she was one of those pointing out this sort of peaceful atmosphere. And <laughs> she said so well to go that people have called it boring. Um, and she said so strong is the expectation that Waitangi must be mired in controversy that when there is none, it has to be invented. <laughs> and what was she referring to? Well, she went on to say um, perhaps there was an attempt to find controversy where there wasn't one in Christopher Luxon, uh, using uh, Hobson's words, uh, meaning together we are one notion, and one journalist who wasn't named saying that this was compared to uh, One Nation's Pauline Hanson, which seems, yeah, indeed, a, a bit of a stretch, and she didn't say who, which journalist had made that comparison. I don't know who quite it is. Quite a stretch. Yeah, but <laughs> with, with that in mind, though, uh, it's not quite the same thing, but TVNZ1 News on the Sunday, on Waitangi Day, also kind of headlined controversy in the way it introduced its bulletin uh, like this that night. Hello, my Heidi, my welcome to One News. For the first time post-COVID, the beehive descended on Waitangi for the political porphyry. Despite plans to keep politics out of it, there was disagreement over treaty settlements and some took exception to parts of Christopher Luxon's speech now, I think that was a little bit loose because, I mean, first of all, maybe it's nitpicking, but the beehive is the executive branch of government. It's not just synonymous with politicians. But that supposed upset caused by Luxon's speech, I think, was a bit overcooked. I mean, um, in TVNZ's report, they just had it was limited to one soundbite each from a Green and a Labour MP who objected to Luxon calling the treaty a little experiment. Um, and I don't think that was really a hugely controversial at all. Quite a surprising thing to label it, though, a little experiment or an experiment. Well, yeah, I suppose so. But, I mean, he did clarify that in other interviews. There was one, actually, which was um, quite relaxed for, um, you know, a guy who's been under pressure as being uh, not a confident performer in the media. He spoke to Marnie Dunlop um, at the treaty grounds in RNZ's Waitangi Day special. Um, But I had some sympathy for Christopher Luxon because he copped it um, that night from News Hub for something that I think seemed much more trivial. 
But it was something else about Luxon's speech that riled up New Zealand first, his use of cue cards. You should be able to stand up on our national day and give a speech without notice. That's right. Are you comfortable speaking without cue cards? Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yep, absolutely. The wisdom of Winston Peters wedging him back into the game. Others use notes too, but mainly as an effort to embrace te reo Māori. Mm, cue card gate. Is, is it an issue? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad that um, new sub-political editor Jenna Lynch, who we heard from there, uh, was at the end of that report in a live interview on News Hub at Six asked about that. But I mean, my feeling was you know, she was sort of playing into New Zealand first there because they were trying to undermine or dig at Christopher Luxon. They know the media are keen right now for stories about uh, Christopher Luxon's personal appeal or perhaps lack of it. Um, yeah, so uh, Jenna Lynch was asked, uh, look, is this really a big deal uh, or was this just New Zealand first nitpicking? Marae is a place where you are expected to speak from the heart. Whaikorero is the lifeblood of the marae. It is usually spontaneous. And so using those cue cards felt a bit weird, it looked a bit weird, but also it speaks to Christopher Luxon's self-confidence and the confidence he has in what he is saying. It doesn't help with the authenticity issue. Yes, I reckon that authenticity issue is is something they're running. Um, So I don't think it's... It's New Zealand first necessarily nitpicking. They're just politicking. I think it was News Hub doing the the nitpicking. And I think it's part of, you know, we spoke a couple of weeks ago last time I was on about the press gallery focus becoming really intense on the two political party leaders of National and Labour, uh, and particularly Chris Luxon. It's getting really, really intense. And two weeks ago, I kind of went off a bit on that. So maybe I'll just wind myself back in now. (laughs) This whole Chris versus Chris thing, it's um, only getting bigger for the gallery. Yeah, wind yourself in, Colin. So what other verdicts on the media coverage of Waitangi this year? Were there any highlights to mention? Um, well, just one that uh, st- struck uh, me was Richard Harmon, who's saying, uh, he's a veteran, former TVNZ uh, political editor from way back, now has his own outlet called Politic Online. He said uh, on Facebook, I covered Waitangi nearly 50 years ago for the first time. This time around, the coverage was the most comprehensive I've seen. Uh, it was coverage from Waitangi. It was outstanding, from the Herald, from stuff. RNZ have been everywhere, so that's a sort of nice thing to say from uh, someone with a, a long span of, um, of exposure to that. And he, one thing I would highlight too, this is just something I picked out. This was RNZ's coverage. It was the special hosted by Marnie Dunlop and Julian Wilcox. And when they got the show underway at 8am, um, they set the scene from the grounds. Um, Marnie introduced a tribute to uh, Te Tifai Harawera. And so this is how they segued into it. It's a bit of a long clip, um, but the actual tribute itself isn't online. So I think it's, it's worth hearing. Julian just mentioned Queen Elizabeth. So it would be remiss for us not to also recognise the Queen, or Ngāpuhi, the towering presence of a woman who made her mark here and in the wider struggle for Māori treaty rights and the advancement of our people. My name is taken from the Bible, and it's an Egyptian name, Titefei. My grandfather altered it to give it a Maori spelling, Titefei, but Titefei was an Egyptian princess, and I was given that name and brought up to understand that I had a special role to play and a special place in our whole whanau. Yeah, so sorry that was a bit long, but... um. It, it, it was really interesting because 
I think in years gone by, you know, Tetefa Harawera has been a figure of controversy and one of those who fitted that we spoke about earlier that kind of default frame of conflict that Audrey Young of the Herald mentioned. She was often just described as a radical or a firebrand and so on. Um, and with Waitangi Day in mind, the woman that made Helen Clark, uh, Clark cry that time. Um, and I think in past years, if she'd been compared like that on RNZ to Queen Elizabeth, you know, that could have been a bit controversial. But, you know, now she's obviously um, died, so she was acknowledged as a kuia and a Napui leader and a figurehead, but, you know, kind of without rancor. And it was a really interesting and well-produced little piece of radio. Yeah, unfortunately not online, but anyone who heard it, I think, would, would remember it. It was really good. Yeah, when when somebody uh, has died, you know, it really does have to be without rancor, doesn't it? But I didn't really hear very much any mention of the time she spent nearly, she spent nine months in jail the end of the 80s, didn't she? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there was only part of her story there, but, you know, those the, the early years uh, mentioned in, in that that tribute. It was excellent. I hope I hope they do put it online, actually. I might have a word, see if we can get it put online, because, uh, yeah, I'd certainly want to hear it again. Colin, the media themselves, uh, they've attracted hostility in the past and um, been made not welcome at Waitangi. Was there any sign of that this year? No, very much the the opposite. Um, Richard Harmon, in fact, wrote about that as well in his Facebook post saying the Waitangi Trust media arrangements have been equally outstanding and it hasn't always been that way. And I can recall, I I think it was 2017, I hope I'm getting my years right, I co-hosted Waitangi Day from uh, from Wellington uh, for RNZ with Mihi Forbes. And she spoke about having been there for TV3 and the very fractious and delicate relationships with the organisers and with the marae and being caught in the middle of efforts to kind of control the media's movements, sometimes issues about costs uh, of the hosting and all of that. Um, and that, again, I think fed into the um, the perception that the event was about conflict because obviously if the media having a hard time, they can't really, very well uh, ignore it themselves when it's a legitimate part of the story. But, you know, since then there have been efforts, I think, of TVNZ's Mikey Sherman when she worked for Seven Sharp a few years back did a brilliant first-hand report about what it was like to be there with her own whānau. And, you know, she's now Deputy Political Editor at TBNZ, so she can bring her knowledge of Waitangi, a different type of uh, knowledge of the event um, to that. And I think that makes a big change. Also, Stuff had a big team there this year. Uh, they had senior reporter Joel Maxwell and uh, Taurapa, uh, who's Stuff's uh, kaihotu reo Māori, so their first full-time Te Reo Translator, and uh, they did an excellent podcast called uh, Kotamu Tamu, uh, where they interpreted some of the things that are happening on Waitangi Day and did it in a very listenable way. And all that depth of experience really does improve the coverage, doesn't it? Yeah, and I've got one quick, if I can, I've got time to play it, one quick example of that. So um, they actually didn't make, they referenced Chris Luxon and his cue cards, and they didn't say that was a major breach of Tikang or a protocol or anything like that. Um, But they did address, you know, David Seymour gave a speech all in Tadeo, which was uh, noted in the news and fair enough too, because he's been attacked for being, I think, a useless Maori by Willie Jackson in the past year. But uh, in that Kotamutamu podcast, uh, Joel Maxwell and Tarapa gave this interpretation of because of their knowledge and their Tadeo ability of what happened after um, David Seymour made that speech. Mm. Shane Jones stood up and and gave him his whakapapa. He delivered it in front of everybody. Yes. He went right back as far as he could, and he listed every single generation and lined it all the way down to David Seymour right in front of him. Yes. And then, if that wasn't a power move enough, he then said, I suggest you consult your whakapapa and please live up to it. <laughs> yes. I mean, to some, you could... And it's what I love about speaking 
speaking at Paul for the Alex, the Fai There's so many layers to this. At the very, at the most superficial level, level it's oh, here's an uncle giving you your fucker papa, telling you your your ancestors. But once you start digging underneath, there's a there's it's a dig at David Seymour, mm. and it, it cuts quite deep. I would imagine if you're David Seymour. Well, besides the content, great kōrero there. Yeah, yeah, indeed, and I mean, it just shows. I mean, that I saw. Seymour's speech reported the fact he'd done it all in te reo, which was a big effort and, you know, very, very difficult. And uh, But, the, you know, that context about how it was received, you wouldn't know that unless you had te reo skills and you understood, you know, what, what happens after uh, they give their uh, the, the, their speeches during the profiti. So, yeah, that, that I think shows the benefit that you get a bit of colour that you wouldn't otherwise get. And, yeah, in the form of the podcast, it really, um, it really came to life. So that's where I think these things pay off. And we know uh, in the media that we haven't had that with, uh, you know, a small number numbers of Māori reporters and people with knowledge of Te Māori in our newsrooms and this is where it really counts.